This is Dr. Alyssa Reingold speaking to you from the Medical University of South Carolina. I'm a clinical psychologist and specialize in the area of trauma and loss, specifically working with folks who've lost loved ones to homicide. I'm here today to talk to you about special considerations of loss by homicide. Roughly 16,000 homicide deaths occur in the U.S. each year. These rates actually have been on the decline over the past decade, with a recent uptick in the past two years. Although certain types of homicides have been on the rise, um, and those include firearm-related homicides and mass violence-related homicides. Of note, homicide is the third leading cause of death among young people ages 15 to 24 um, after unintentional injuries and suicide. So it definitely impacts a significant number of people across the United States. And as I talk today, I'm going to talk about um, a survivor of homicide and what does it mean to be a su homicide survivor. When I refer to survivor of homicide, I'm referring to a family, friend, loved one that are left behind following a murder. Survivors can come from many different backgrounds. However, un underserved populations are usually overrepresented, um, particularly among ethnic and racial minorities. When I'm talking about loss from homicide, I want to talk a little bit about what makes loss from homicide different from other types of loss. So I think there are a number of areas that makes homicide uh, unique and special. Um, the definite, the suddenness of the loss, um, but not only the suddenness of this type of loss, but the violent nature of the death. That this is the intentional harm of a human being by another human being. So there's the concept of volition, that somebody willfully took the life of a survivor's loved one. Often what goes hand in hand with making homicide unique in its type of loss is the stigma of murder. Um, the stigma of others viewing this murder, uh, viewing your loved one's loss and how that was, um, how it occurred in the circumstances. Often homicide brings along a, a significant public view that you don't often see with other types of grief and loss. So when, when you know, somebody's son is brutally murdered, it's on the news, it's in social media, there's significant public view, that's very different than if somebody's son had died of cancer quietly surrounded by his family in a hospital. Often you see homicide um, cases involve the criminal justice system, and so that adds another aspect that makes this type of loss unique and different. We'll talk in a minute about the trajectory of grief and loss and symptoms and, um, and how that criminal justice system, when, when trials are, occur, it usually is between one to two years post-murder. And that's usually when, when family members are starting to get a new sense of normal and starting to put their pieces of their life back together. But now it's um, that loss is now being sort of ripped open again. That wound is being opened up again through that criminal justice system where they have to relive um, the facts about how their loved one is murdered. Homicide um, can bring on a significant number of symptoms among those grieving that I think are unique to homicide. Clearly, any type of loss, somebody can feel anger um, about that loss. When it comes to homicide, sometimes that anger can be directed at the perpetrators. And, and folks even sometimes report that they have 
um, fantasies about wanting to hurt that uh, the person that killed their loved one. For some, that those fantasies can comfort them. Some it can be scary because they've never had such strong emotions. And it's important as a provider like myself is to kind of recognize, normalize those types of emotions and feelings, but also checking in to make sure somebody isn't actually going to potentially follow up on some of those impulses. Loss from homicide could bring on feelings of fear and vulnerability. So unfortunately, survivors experience not only grief because of the loss of their loved one, but they may also experience trauma symptoms associated with the type of loss. Um, So they may uh, have that sort of double burden of a traumatic death, um, bringing on fear, vulnerability, guilt, shame, um, and um, risk for significant other types of problems such as post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, um, complicated bereavement, which we'll talk about in just a moment. One thing of of note to pay attention to is that some survivors of homicide um, commonly express that they feel like professionals don't seem to understand their type of unique loss. It's traumatic in nature. It's horrific. And there's some professionals that sometimes have a hard time wrapping their head around um, how to address the needs of this type of population. So when we talk about bereavement and grief, I just want to touch upon sort of what, what we consider as uncomplicated grief or, in parentheses, normal grieving that some folks might experience. So it's important to recognize that there is not a right way to grieve, that grief is a personal reaction. And pretty much I tell clients that I work with that aside from intending to hurt yourself or others, any feelings that they may have are normal. Um, they may have a lot of overwhelming thoughts and memories of the deceased. Um, they may have dis- disbelief, depressed mood, yearning um, in the earlier months. For somebody who's just grieving um, to a natural death, not traumatic like homicide, that process, usually by six months to a year, there's a shift to accepting of the loss, and folks are able to engage in a little bit more in life. When When it's a traumatic loss like homicide, we see that trajectory significantly shifting to a year to two years out before individuals report feeling like they're getting a new sense of normal. And so very common that that trajectory can be extended um, and so we need to, to normalize that for folks going along that process. As you might recognize, grief is really a constellation of thoughts, emotions, behaviors, rather than a set of stages that we go through. And so there's not a formal set process. It's, it's an overwhelming. Lots of people may feel anger. They may feel shame. They may feel sadness. They might not feel any of those, or they may feel anxiety. And so it's important to normalize the, the full constellation of, of a wide range of thoughts. The trajectory of uncomplicated grief, typically those first few weeks are pretty distressful um, and difficult. And actually, we even see a spike of even more distress about one to three months after loss. That's usually when folks' support networks start to go along their daily basis, where early on people were coming in, providing food, providing support. But about a month to two months out, you see loved ones, friends and families, uh, extended families start to kind of go about their normal day. And then they're now sitting through and sifting through what is my day-to-day life going to be like without my loved one here. And so you usually see a spike in symptoms about one to three months out. And then that kind of that curve sort of slowly declines. For, for homicide loss, again, it's about one to two years out. And you see those symptoms of grief sort of decrease as uh, at the same time acceptance 
of that type of loss starts to increase. Um, but as I mentioned, it's a, it's a pretty long trajectory. However, that grief can sometimes, people can get stuck in that. Um, and uh, they can have what's called persistent complex bereavement disorder or prolonged grief. And in the field, actually, there's right now some shift and some terminology and how you described this um, stuckness. Some folks describe it as more severe grief, chronic grief, um, as I mentioned, prolonged grief disorder or complicated grief. And all those words really are describing the same type of presentation of, of folks that don't go, th go through that sort of normal trajectory of grief where they process, they accept that loss, they sort of get stuck um, in that intense response. This, uh, and they can have this diagnosis of persistent complex bereavement disorder. And usually that's um, identified as kind of this intense yearning, longing for their loved one, lack of acceptance of the loss, intense sorrow, that sort of prolonged um, six months, one year, two years out. But that dilemma is trying to figure out, you know, we don't want to over-pathologize a grief reaction, um, but we also don't want to ne neglect to recognize and treat something that might be clinically impairing and might kind of get into the way of somebody's function. So there's kind of that delicate balance of helping normalize responses, but also see if this is chronic, if this is ongoing, if there's lack of acceptance of this loss, that that individual might need some additional assistance to help them move through that grief process. Um, loss by homicide not only increases risk for developing uh, persistent complex bereavement, but also for post-traumatic stress disorder. So we also often think of PTSD in the context of war, right, where somebody's experienced a, tra tra a traumatic event where now they've returned and they have a, a host of different types of symptoms. Individuals who lose a loved one to homicide might also be um, experiencing PTSD, even if they weren't there present with their loved one. If, they're, if they know enough details about what happened to their loved one, they might um, conjure up images and distressing thoughts um, about what may have happened to their loved one. So they may be at risk of developing PTSD. PTSD is made up of a number of symptoms, re-experiencing symptoms, avoidance, shifts in mood and cognition, and kind of hyperarousal. Um, rates of PTSD among those that are uh, traumatically bereaved vary in the research anywhere between 18% to 34%. So these individuals are at significant risk of developing PTSD. So folks that lost loved one to homicide might be at risk of complicated bereavement, which I just described, of PTSD, and also of major depression. Um, they may have a constellation of any one of those symptoms. So it's really important to connect people with services to get them assessed, to get them resources they may need. Folks, uh, risk factors for developing some of these disorders include loss of resources. So if their loved one was the breadwinner and they have financial losses, they may have some limited resources. Um, isolation, isolation and withdrawal is a risk factor. Extreme emotional distress. Uh, negative cognitions or thoughts and beliefs about the, the loss, about themselves, about the world, as well as poor social support is an indicator that those individuals might be at risk of developing PTSD, complicated grief, and or uh, depression. Now, if somebody has one of those disorders, however, there are some effective interventions that are out there, and there's some promising practices. 
We know that social support can be a buffer, can lower the risk for bereavement-related complications. So connecting people with social supports early on can help buffer them. Um, There are a number of support groups out in the communities across the country. There's parents of murdered children. There's various um, support groups for survivors of homicide. Connecting people with support groups that are specifically related to this type of traumatic loss can be um, very beneficial for some. There's some early intervention um, strategies out there, skills for psychological recovery. So that's teaching people some coping skills to manage. It doesn't take their loss and grief away at all, but it helps give them some tools and skills to, to help them continue on their journey of loss. Then, then there's more specific treatment interventions out there as well. For instance, restorative retelling for violent death, complicated grief treatment, cognitive processing therapy for PTSD, behavior activation for depression. All of these actually fit within a cognitive behavioral framework of helping teach people um, things they can do to cope in and um, organize that loss, teach them ways to find new meaning in their loss, uh, new meaning in their life after loss, um, so that their their life now is filled with more purpose and meaning um, along this sort of journey, um, which often folks report feeling like they, they have no purpose and meaning after such loss. So it's really about helping them figure out what that new meaning and purpose is about. There are some SSRIs that might be helpful for those bereaved individuals who suffer from depression, although medications alone aren't necessarily going to completely impact uh, grief response. And then if you are working with um, somebody who is traumatically bereaved by homicide, I encourage you to kind of, uh, again, help connect them to resources, to reach out, to encourage individuals to take small steps one day at a time, um, trying to incorporate some potentially pleasant activities or incorporate things that give them meaning or connection to their loved one, um, to use their support network, um, to build bridges back to um, you know their current present world, which looks very different now, um, to kind of establish a new new routines, new normal. But also allow survivors to acknowledge their emotions. Their, you know, they can do that through writings, through journaling, um, and, and helping them find ways to celebrate good memories of their loved one. I could probably talk for the next uh, two hours in more depth about um, loss from homicide, but hopefully I've just given you a little bit of insight about the unique characteristics that come along with this traumatic type of loss, that ongoing struggle individuals have when coping and managing life after loss from homicide, um, and can help give you some tools and ideas to, to think about helping those along their journey. So it's learning about how not to take that, that loss. It's not something you get over or move on from, but it's learning how to live with and carry that loss lightly as they kind of move forward in life. Thank you very much.